Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, Genesis, A New Perspective, we are trying to breathe fresh life into this ancient text that lays the foundation for the Christian Bible. Each week, we will be exploring different ways that these Genesis stories impact us and the world around us and our ways of understanding God. I hope you enjoy. In the world of literature, there are few names that are as well-known as Edgar Allan Poe. You all have heard of Edgar Allan Poe, have you not? Okay, just make sure we're on the same page with that one. I don't know about you, but I do remember the first time that I read Poe's work. I was in eighth grade, and to be honest with you, I was kind of shocked by what I was reading. I was shocked not only by the fact that I actually understood what he was talking about, which was rare for me at that time. I could barely understand anything I was reading in English class. But I was also shocked by the content of his stories. If you've ever read Edgar Allan Poe, you know that his stuff is dark. And it really struck a chord with me for whatever reason. Poe's work has a psychological component to it. It's not just a story with plot and characters. He allows you to get inside the mind of his characters so you can understand why they're making the decision that they're making. In perhaps his best well-known short story, The Telltale Heart, we are introduced to a narrator who is intent upon killing an old man. When he decides to do this, we obviously begin to question what is his relationship to the old man. And we're never really told. The narrator could be a servant of the old man, the old man's child, perhaps even the old man's slave. You have to remember that Poe wrote when slavery was still legal in the United States. All we know is that this narrator loves the old man but hates the old man's vulture eye. Indeed, we're not even told whether the narrator is male or female. All we know is is that he's been referred to as a madman, so therefore we assume that perhaps it is actually a man. This story, if you've ever read it, and we actually had a rendition of it in the first two services, which was kind of cool. We had an actor come in and do it. But if you've ever read this story, you realize that it's a confession of sorts. And you don't know who the narrator's confessing to. The narrator could be confessing to a judge, a prison warden, perhaps a fellow inmate, maybe a doctor, or even a newspaper reporter. But more than likely, when you read this story, you realize that he's confessing this crime to you. And that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? Have you ever had somebody confess something to you in confidence? I have. As a pastor, it happens to me all the time. People come to me and entrust me with their secrets. And you know what? It's a privilege to be the bearer of those secrets for others. But have you ever thought about why we do this? Why do we feel the need to divulge our secrets to others? Well, I think it has something to do with guilt. Guilt is a feeling of responsibility or remorse for some crime, wrong, or misdeed that we have committed. Guilt's a big reason why people come to church, right? Because we want God to rid us of that feeling. I find guilt to be very interesting because guilt has the ability to stay with us for days, months, and even years after the event that caused that feeling of guilt. Evolutionary psychologists will tell you that guilt is an important survival mechanism. 
Guilt causes us to curb bad behaviors that could hurt ourselves and other people. Without guilt, we would have no barrier to prevent us from being immoral. This is why sociopaths, do you know what a sociopath is? If you watch any ABC shows, everybody on there is a sociopath. <laughs> so a sociopath is somebody who has no conscience. And that's why they are the exception and not the rule. And that's a good thing for us. Because ultimately, if we had no conscience, then our society would devolve into chaos. We would hurt each other indiscriminately, and our species wouldn't survive. But thankfully for us, most of us do feel guilt. And that's why we're here. That's the positive side. But the negative side of guilt is something else. Guilt can be debilitating in certain circumstances. Have you ever done something so bad, so wrong, that it's all you can think about? It's almost as if your mind compulsively thinks about that thing all the time. It's a hard feeling to describe in words, but it's almost as if acid is corroding your insides. Guilt has a way of eating away at your soul. And in the telltale heart, that guilt is manifested by the beating of the old man's heart in his ear. Now, if you remember the story, what happens is he murders the old man, puts him onto some floorboards, and then in the end, he ends up revealing where the old man is because this beating of the heart becomes so loud in his ears. Now, in the story, what he tells us is after he murders the old man, he feels the old man's heart, and in fact, there is no beat. So he's imagining this heartbeat. Therefore, we can come to the conclusion that he feels so much guilt over what he's done that the only way he can be relieved of this guilt is by confessing to his crime. And this raises a really interesting question for us, doesn't it? Which is, why does confession, why does confessing to something that we've done wrong, a crime, why does that make us feel so much better and relieve us of guilt? And to answer that question, I'd like to turn to our scripture for today, because I do believe that the scripture that we read actually has a lot to say about this very complex human problem. Now, if you were here last week, I apologize, because I had to recap kind of where we've been in Genesis, because I've been gone from the pulpit for a month, and I have to recap today as well, because the story that we read today is actually the culmination of many twists and turns in the Genesis narrative and if you don't know about those twists and turns, you can't really understand what's going on. So I apologize that I have to recap one more time, but I'll only give you the information that you need. So we've been talking about a character whose name is Jacob. Jacob was able to trick his father Isaac into giving him his brother Esau's blessing. Now what you need to know, very simply, Esau was the firstborn of the two brothers. Therefore, by tradition, he's entitled to the inheritance and the blessing of his father. But what happens is Jacob tricks his father, and Esau becomes so upset that he wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob has to flee, has to leave his home. And he ends up seeking refuge at his uncle's house, a man by the name of Laban. Upon entering into Laban's house, he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. But he can't afford the bride price. That's the money that's paid to the family upon agreeing to the proposal. So what happens is Laban says, hey, I'd be happy to give you my daughter. You've got to give me seven years of free labor, though, and we can do this. So seven years later, the night he's supposed to get married, Laban goes in and switches Rachel 
with her older sister, Leah. He does this because he's concerned that if he marries off Rachel first, the younger of the two daughters, that Leah will not find a suitable husband. When Jacob protests, Laban says, hey, we can make this right. Just give me seven more years of free labor, and you can have Rachel. You get married to both of them, right? Two for one deal. But seven more years of labor. He agrees, and where we pick up this story is 14 years later. He's been working for free for 14 years. And he wants to get away. He wants to get out of Dodge. But the problem is that Laban doesn't want to let him go. And so the way he convinces him to stay is he says, look, I'll pay you wages. And the wages they agree upon are actually kind of important in this case. So basically what happens is they say, well, look, I'll give you all the speckled goats in my herd. Now that may not sound like much to you all. It's like great, some goats. But here's the thing. The reason why Laban agrees to this is because ultimately in the Middle East, speckled goats are exceedingly rare. Goats were generally only brown, black, and white. Speckled didn't happen too often. But through some magic or something like that, we're not really told how he does it, but God tells him a way to breed these goats so that he can get lots of them. And eventually, over six years, those speckled goats and striped goats and all those different kind of goats end up far exceeding the number of goats in Laban's herd. And after six years, a total of 20 that he's been there, he said, you know what, we're getting out of here. So he talks to his wives, and they form a plan to leave. The day that they're going to take off is the day that Laban goes out to shear his sheep, a process that will take him two days. So Jacob gets his family, his livestock, his servants, and they take off. Laban comes back and is like, where'd everybody go? And so he ends up taking off after them. Now, it doesn't take Laban very long to catch up because you have to remember, Jacob is moving at the pace of his herds. And when you're moving hundreds of animals in the same direction, that's quite slow. They get into a verbal altercation, but ultimately they form a pact. And so Laban takes some stones and puts them on the side of a road. Now, stones at that time was a way of making a contract because they could not read or write. That's important for you to remember. If you ever go to the Middle East and you see a bunch of stones piled on the side of the road, probably a contract. So they decide at the end of the day, Laban says, look, I'm gonna leave you alone. You can take my daughters, my grandchildren. You can leave here with all of your flocks and your servants. But this land you see before you is mine. And if you cross past these rocks ever again, I will kill you. So. Jacob says, hey, I'm good with that, man. We can go on from there. So he's done with Laban, right? But unfortunately, he has this other problem because not too far down the road is Esau's land. And if you remember, 20 years prior, the last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him too. So he's stuck between two horrible places. Behind him is Laban. He can't go there anymore. Laban will kill him. And in front of him is Esau. And he's afraid Esau is going to kill him. So what he's trying to do is he would like to, if at all possible, avoid Esau's land so he doesn't get seen. But here's the problem. When you have hundreds of goats and all these things you're trying to move, the sound alone could probably be heard for miles. And then on top of that, if anybody gets on high ground, you can see this massive caravan of people. So Jacob decides to act preemptively. He sends ahead of him a couple of servants with some livestock as gifts for Esau and an explanation as to where he's been for 20 years. But then one of these servants runs back to see Jacob, and he's like, hey, I just want to let you know your brother's coming to see you, and he has 400 men with him. 
So, now think about that for a second, right? It's like Esau's coming to see me, but 400 men sounds like an army, so Jacob puts two and two together, and he's like, yep, Esau is definitely going to kill me. So, he puts into action a plan. He sends off two more groups of servants with livestock as gifts because he wants to stall Esau for as long as possible. And then he takes his massive caravan and he splits them into two groups. One group he sends off with his servants and livestock. And the other group he takes his family and sends them off across the river. Now, the river Jabbok, he's about to go across it, but then what happens is he ends up getting in a wrestling match with God. I preach about this back in Advent. So, he's in this wrestling match all night. And at the end of that, God blesses him and renames him Israel. That's when he becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, because he's been wrestling with God all night, though, Esau has time to catch up. And for the first time in 20 years, they are now face to face. Now, you have to assume that Jacob has been dreading this moment for the last 20 years. Jacob cheated his brother out of his blessing, and I think it's fair to say he probably feels a fair amount of guilt about that. Everything he has, all of his good fortune, is the result of being dishonest. It's kind of like if you bought a mansion, and you paid for that mansion by tricking a lot of old people into giving you their life savings. That's essentially kind of what happened here, because he tricks his father, who was blind and could barely, barely do anything, into giving him the blessing. So everything he has, his family, his livestock, his servants, his possessions, all of this are a reminder of his character, who he truly is on the inside. When you've been living a lie, that lie has a way of breaking you down very slowly. You can put it to the back of your mind, you can pretend like it doesn't exist, but that lie has a way of seeping into every aspect of your life. You might go for months or even years without thinking about it, but then one day, something happens. Somebody says something with a particular tone. Somebody gives you a particular kind of look. And then it all comes flooding back and you remember exactly what happened. You remember how you felt on the day, the emotions of the day. You remember with laser precision exactly what you said. You can even retrace your thought process that you were going through at that time. And when that happens, you try to justify why you did what you did. But the truth is you wouldn't be thinking about this in the way that you're thinking about it, if you didn't feel guilt. And this happens to you again and again for years and years. And one day you wake up and you are just so tired because this thing that you did so long ago has been following you for all this time and you want nothing more than for it to simply go away. That's how Jacob feels when he meets his brother again for the first time in 20 years. Now, Jacob expects the worst. He expects his brother to lash out with violence. Indeed, I would almost say that Jacob hopes that his brother does hurt him. He feels so much guilt over this that I think he feels he deserves to be punished. But that's not what happens. Not at all. Esau comes up to him, throws his arms around his neck, and begins to cry. And so what we realize is, after all this time, after all these years of Jacob holding this guilt inside, dreading the day that he would meet his brother again, anticipating his fury, after all this time, we realize that Esau 
has moved on. He let it go, forgave his brother, and started living his life. And Jacob can hardly believe his brother's reaction. Have you ever been thinking about anticipating something for so long and you anticipate it going one way and it goes completely the opposite? He's almost in denial. He can't even believe what's happening. And so Esau introduces his brother, or Jacob introduces Esau to all of his family, because Esau's like, who are all these people? Remember, it's 20 years. Last time he saw him, it was just his brother, and now he's got all this stuff. So he introduces it to them. And then, after that, Jacob starts trying to make things right. He's trying to give them all this cattle and livestock. He's like, here, take it, because he wants to reconcile with Jacob. But what does Esau say? Esau's like, hey, I got enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. He doesn't really want it. But Jacob can't handle that. He can't just let it go. The idea that Esau could simply move on with his life and forgive Jacob, well, that's unfathomable to Jacob because here's the thing. Jacob cannot forgive himself and move on. And Esau... He can see this in his brother. He can see how laden with guilt he actually is. And he realizes that if he doesn't allow his brother to make things right, if he doesn't allow him to give him these gifts, then in the end, you know what's going to happen? Well, his brother's not going to be able to move on with his life. And Esau, being the better man, would rather his brother be able to move on. So he says, you know what? If it'll make you feel better, I'll take your stuff. Just give it to me. And that's how it goes. And the next time they see each other is on the death of their father. Now, you may have noticed that there is a parallel between these two stories, between the story of the telltale heart and Jacob and Esau. In the telltale heart, the only way that the narrator can get rid of this beating heart in his ear is by confessing to his crime. And the only way that Jacob can get rid of his guilt is by giving back to Esau all the things that rightfully belong to him. But yet, knowing this, I still have not answered the basic question that I posed to you earlier, which is, why does confessing to a crime we've committed, why does trying to make things right make us feel so much better and relieve us of guilt? Now, you've got to stay with me on this one because this is where it all comes home. So don't zone out. I noticed that in the last services, people zone out when I start talking about this. So stay with me. All right. What it has to do with is our image. Psychologists will tell you that humans are very image-conscious creatures, much more so than we would like to admit. We will do just about anything to maintain a positive image, not only with those around us, but also within ourselves. So we're always trying to work on two images, the one that others see and the one in our own mind. Now, usually, these two images are actually quite distinct from one another. What people see on the outside is not the same as what we know to be true about ourselves on the inside. On the outside, we want people to think of us as being upright and ethical, right? That's what we would like to see. So even if we know we've done things wrong in our hearts, if you don't know about what I've done, well, you think I'm a great guy, right? That's the great thing about not knowing what's going on in here. And the truth is, we all do this. We're all guilty of this. Because unless you have some kind of disorder, you all have a mind-to-mouth sensor. And you're not going to say everything that you're thinking in your mind. And if you did, people probably wouldn't like you. Because most of what we say is quite negative. 
Now, we're able to maintain this balancing act of having two selves as long as we're okay with how our mistakes have hurt other people. But where the balance begins to tip is when our internal image becomes too disconnected from our external image. So if your internal image is aware of all these mistakes and ways that you've hurt other people, and your external image gives no hint of these mistakes, then that's when we begin to feel guilt. And the truth is, the more distance and disconnected you are between these two images, the harder it is to maintain the disguise that they're the same, the more guilt that you feel. So let me give you an example of this. People who suffer from alcoholism. On the outside, they want everybody to think that they're doing okay, that everything's fine. But on the inside, they know they have this addiction and they can't overcome it. And so they're living two lives. They're living in two different worlds. The same is true of people who commit adultery. On the outside, you want to show that you're a loving spouse to your family. But on the inside, you know that you're going out and you're cheating on them. And this is where we come to confession. You see, confession, by its very nature, what you're doing is you're taking that internal image and you're making it match the external image. Why confession makes us feel so much better and relieves us of guilt is because we become whole. We become one person. So we're no longer two people, the one that everyone else sees and the one we know ourselves to be. The external and the internal are consistent. And when this happens, it gets kind of messy, right? Because when people can see what's going on in here and they know what's happening outside, that can be kind of rough. But the truth is, when people can see you for who you are, when you own the mistakes you have made, well, that's when healing those mistakes becomes a possibility. So as you leave here today, what I want you to really take away from this sermon is that when we confess, because we do it every week in here, a lot of people think confession is just about being forgiven by God, being right with God. But that's only half the story. Confession is a lot about being right with yourself. It's about becoming whole and being honest with those who you've harmed. And so as you leave here today, what I want you to think about is, I want you to think about how disconnected are these two sides of myself? How distant is the internal image from the external image? And do you feel guilt over that? Do you feel the beating of that heart in your ear? Because if you do, I hope that you will find the strength, and I hope God will give you the strength, that you would confess not only to God, but to those you have hurt. Because the truth is, as hard as it is for us to be honest with ourselves, the story of Jacob and the story of the telltale heart teach us that it's far, far harder to live a lie. So may you have the strength to confess those things that you've done to God and to others. May you become whole. And may you go out and heal those relationships that are broken. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.